Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Look out. Is only films to be buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein. I am a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, an ice bucket, and I love films. As Christina Westover once said, unrequited love is the infinite curse of a lonely heart and odd numbers are the infinite curse of all the Star Trek films. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think that used to be a rumour, but it's not something I'd sort of bet my life on. But fair enough, Christina, if it's that important to you. Fair enough. Thank you. Thanks for joining in. Every week I invite a special guest over. I tell them they've died. Then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. Previous guests include Barry Jenkins, Jamila Jamil, Kevin Smith, and even Bed Pambles. But this week it is the brilliant writer, comedian, producer, mogul, and director Judd Apatow. Get over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein where you get an extra 20 minutes of chat with Judd. We go deep, we talk beginnings, endings, there's a secret. You also get the whole episode uncut and ad-free and as a video. Check it out over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. Ted Lasso Season 2 is available on Apple TV+. Plus. You can watch that along with Season 1. And you can also watch Super Bob and Soulmates on Amazon Prime in most places. So... Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow, for God's sakes. Judd Apatow has been involved in one form or another in possibly like, I mean, all of the things that you've loved in comedy in the last 30 years. I mean, all of them. He's pretty much, I mean, all of them. Do you know what I mean? Like he was involved in the Larry Sanders show, in Freaks and Geeks, the 40-year-old virgin, This Is 40, the Gary Shandling Diaries, the King of Staten Island, to Crashing, to Love, um... Uh, all the things, I mean, there's too many things. Do you know what I mean? It's too much for one head to take in. But he, he done them all. His work is legendary. It's a real privilege to sit and talk to him for this long on the podcast. We'd met doing a gig together at the Largo and the wonderful Mark Flanagan told Judd that he had to do my podcast. And because Judd is a polite man and he was right in front of me, he said yes. So I was very lucky that he did. Uh, we had a really great time. I think this is a lovely episode and I really think you're going to like it. So that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 188 of Films to be Buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. It is I, Brett Goldstein, and I am joined today by a writer, a director, a producer, a documentarian, a book man a stand-up <laughs> a netflix specialer a 
changer of the game. A lover, a fighter, a husband, a father, and one of the most influential men in American comedy. Please welcome to the show. Can't believe he's here. Could you believe he's here? He's really here. Please welcome. It's Mr. John Apatow. Woo! Whoa! Thank you. That, that wow. made me feel. That made me feel nice. I feel nice now. Well, listen. I'm grateful you're doing this. Thank you for your time. I actually was making notes before this, and you're sort of one of the few people I've had on where I'm kind of annoyed because there's so much in your life and career that I want to talk about, and I know there's a limited amount of time. And so it's literally like I'm having to pick, like, what's the bit What's the bit I can ask you about? Because you've done it all and you've done significant things a number of times. I don't know how that feels for you from a moment-by-moment moment basis. Do you just feel like, oh, nothing's happened, I'm just, just a guy in a hat? I feel like they have enough for the in-memorial reel. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think that's... That's how I look at it. Like, it's a good montage. It's a good montage. And so... Really, that's all you care about in life is like when they cut to the montage, mm. do, you, do you have the goods? You know, that quick is a clip. heck of a montage. Right. You go to the chess whack shot and then you go to the <laughs> me bombing on evening at the improv. You know, there's all sorts of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck. Well, so you and I met at Largo doing a gig. I was very lucky to do a gig with Pete Holmes and you were on and you had told me. I mean, can we can we talk about stand up for a bit? Because yes, please. We're both interested in it. You have just written. You're about to release a new book, "Sicker in the Head." Yes, it's uh, interviews with comedians, which is what I did when I was a kid, just because mm. I wanted to meet comedians. It was just an excuse to get near them, just to ask them how they do it. So the first book was maybe half and half interviews I did when I was 15 and new ones, and this one is all new ones except. John Candy from 1984. Mm. The funny thing is, for the new one, I did most of it during the pandemic. So I realized that everyone was home. So no one could say no to me because it's for charity. <laughs> it goes to A26, this free tutoring and literacy charity. So okay. when you call someone and you know they're home, you know they're bored, and it's for charity, they can't say no. And then the interviews were kind of intense and emotional mm. because everyone was sitting home thinking about their lives and their journeys. So so I was able to get people that normally I probably couldn't get, like Lin-Manuel Miranda and Letterman. I got, had, uh, I mean, so many cool people. Mindy Kaling did it, and Nathan Fielder, who you don't That's hear right. talk a lot about yeah. how he does that, and Sasha Baron Cohen, and just tons of people. So uh, I'm psyched that it's out. Because the first one was the book I wish someone wrote when I was a kid. It didn't exist. Hmm. And so I've seen, with Sick in the Head, a lot of people really went through it with a highlighter and it helped them the way doing the interviews helped me what do you think it is i i, I was suddenly when i was reading it i thank you for my i got a chance to read some of it and it's brilliant like the other one but i was it suddenly occurred to me i was like why does this work so well in print when they're interviews like what you know you could equally yeah. i guess release the audio as a package or whatever but there's so, it's so satisfying to read these things do you have a theory on that i don't actually know why that is i don't know because someone was making fun of me they're like so judd this is like a podcast written mm. down <laughs> but when i did him as a kid i i used to joke it's almost <laughs> like i was trying to invent the podcast yeah because it's what i wanted i wanted a long form interview with seinfeld if you love seinfeld in 1983 there was no hour interview with jerry yeah. where he talked about how he did it so i did it for the radio 
And that's the thing that I, I wanted. When you write it down, I think they work because I'm sharing my life in the conversation. It's not just me asking questions. And it's also one creative person asking another creative person how they do it. And we're both, you know, some of it is inside baseball of comedy, but a lot of it is emotional. And why do we want to be funny? Mm-hmm. Which I'm always fascinated by. You know, what, yeah. what, what leads us to feel like this is how we want to process the world? When we first spoke, you were, you were doing a bit of stand-up, but you were doing more uh, like sort of Q&A chat. And you said to me, if it's okay to share this, I asked you if you were planning a new special or what you were working on with stand-up. And you said, I can't find... You say it, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, I said the pandemic made me confused about my stand-up point of view. Because I'm not sure if I'm sad or I'm angry or cynical or hopeful. I'm all over the place every day. So I can't figure out my stance. And I I was kind of embarrassed to try to just do what I was in the middle of when the pandemic started, which mm-hmm. was very domestic about my life and family and stories from show business. And it all felt kind of stupid. I'm slowly <laughs> trying to see if it's okay to you know to just just tell a funny story about someone that I bumped into or or something that's mm. happening with my kids moving out of the house and empty nesting but mm. it all felt so unimportant now that's just in my head i watch everyone else like you and Pete Holmes they're crushing it they're great no one is having the mental issue i'm having but i'm about to host the directors guild awards so oh, i have wow, to okay. do stand up at a monologue only in front of spielberg so there's no pressure <laughs> To do stand-up in front of Spike Lee and Steven Spielberg and Gene Campion. Oh, my so God. So now I have to get my shit together. Oh, my God. How long have you got? I have till the middle of March. Oh, my God. And Are so you... I've been going out on stage doing, like, a DJ Awards monologue yeah. at comedy clubs. So I have to say to the crowd, I know you're not directors, and <laughs> you may not understand or care about any of this, but I'm going to treat you all like you are 200 directors. And it's gone pretty well so far. I'm, I'm gaining confidence by the day. Is is that, that like date in the diary, is that something that's like a low-level anxiety that is residing in your brain at all times? Or is it like, no, I'll be fine when I get to it? I think uh, I would be very nervous if I hadn't done it a couple of times. This is the third time right. I've done it. So I have a sense of the crowd, and I think they're just happy that the show doesn't suck is the truth. Yeah, yeah. You know, So for someone who's one of them to get up and talk about what it's like to direct, what it's like to direct during the pandemic and all the weird things about you know, having to communicate people with, to people with a mask on you. I mean, you've been through this. It's everything yeah. Adam Sandler said to me, shooting a movie during the pandemic basically removes every aspect of shooting that was fun. <laughs> you can't like uh, yeah. kibitz with people and chat mm-hmm. you know you can't have dinner afterwards you, you know when you make it we made a movie called the bubble that's gonna be on netflix this spring and it was right. about the horrors of uh this time and shooting a movie during the pandemic so in the movie they're oh, trying right. to shoot a dinosaur action movie and it's a bunch <laughs> of people stuck in a house uh, in a hotel in London, and the and the studios pressuring them to finish this dinosaur movie, and it, it's about the isolation, how everyone loses their mind, uh, right. and uh, so we've all lived that. I just I lived it so much that I had to make a movie about it. You know, I was having such a meltdown. I'm like, I guess I should make a movie about what this feels like right now. Yeah. 
can I ask with you, given that you uh, you've sort of done all the all the things you've done the writing, the stand up, the acting. The I don't know if you've done acting, have you? If you have, I apologize. I, I've done small things. I'm not very okay. proud of my abilities in that arena, okay. but when called upon, sometimes I will hurt someone's project by making an attempt. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but you do all the things, and you and and also King of Staten Island, which I fucking loved. I thought it was a really beautiful film. I guess my question is. Do you know what what the thing that takes you to the next thing is? Like, is it an emotional connection to something? As in, when you're like, I'm going to produce this thing, I'm going to direct this thing, I'm going to stand up this thing. Like, like, do you know what the difference is for you that draws you in whatever role it is? Well, sometimes it's just a love for comedy and certain comedy challenges. Like, you know, hosting an award show with all the celebrities there is the fantasy of every kid who loves comedy. So I'm never going to get asked to host the Academy Awards, but I'll get mm-hmm. like the Producers Guild or the TGA. So it's like a mini version. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? No one sees it. I don't let them even stream it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I get to to do that. But a lot of times I find after the fact, I I realize I made something because I was trying to work something out in my own mind. So I was attracted to talk about marriage because I was trying to figure something out or I wanted to talk about death and mortality and cancer. And so uh, I wrote funny people, but I'm not exactly sure the specifics of it till almost a few years later when I watch it and go, oh, that's what I was working out. I never realized till later that, that that's what I was working on. Even the King of Staten Island, and I'm I'm attracted so many to so many aspects of what Pete's story is. And I was very interested in firefighters and the idea of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That there were people that weren't like me. They weren't egomaniacs looking to make people <laughs> laugh and have a showbiz life. They're just willing to risk their lives to help other people. And I would I, I thought that doesn't seem like what I would ever write about. So that should be where I should go. I'm interested in in mm. learning about that. But then later I realized that I was also dealing with divorce and step-parents and feelings that I had as a kid adjusting, trying to get along with people uh, and that there were aspects that were very personal for me. In terms of like, I guess this is a question of ego, I suppose, but there's a difference between you. you've done lots of things where you have helped comedians where they're front and stage where you've made them stars where you've and I assume you have lots of joy in that and then there's things where you do which is more about you specifically or more you you've written directed it you've again are you happy in all of those positions or do you ever find yourself being I don't know jealous or like I want to be doing the (laughs) I want to be Pete yeah I I definitely certainly have a level uh, deep in me that goes, you never became Bill Murray. <laughs> you know, I think that we all we all had that fantasy as a kid. We'd watch Ghostbusters and want to be a Ghostbuster or whatever. And I certainly have had to accept that people who are on screen are magic. They have a charisma. They Why is Bono Bono? You know, what's mm-hmm. the difference between him and just some guy in a local band? And, and people have something that's indefinable. And it's what draws us to people. And I always think, you know, if they have a 10 of that, I might have a three. And and three is kind of entertaining, but it ain't Jim Carrey. You know, (laughs) it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not uh, Jerry Lewis. And, and on some level, I think most people in the world have to accept that they're not 
Johnny mm. Carson. They're not walking around, you know, handsome and talented and hilarious, and everyone's fascinated by them. So yeah, there's definitely moments, but I also don't hunger for it enough and never did to really try to make that happen. I was just as amused or close to just as amused to write like a piece of stand up for somebody like Jim mm. Carrey and watch him annihilate in a way I knew I would never have the courage to even attempt. You know, there's a fearlessness to some of these people, to Adam Sandler or Amy Schumer, where when you see them do it, you're like, wow, that's just, it's another level. It's like Michael Phelps (laughs) versus like a high school swimmer. You can swim. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got so many things to ask you, but maybe one other thing I may ask is um, you also made recently or well maybe not that recently the zen diaries of gary sandy which i think is a truly extraordinary piece of work and if people listening have not seen it i very much suggest you do like it's a very deep dive into your late friend gary sandy but it goes through his diaries it's incredibly intimate and it's very sad and very moving and real and honest and deep and i wondered for you making that and going through his diaries and stuff how much of it was like there's a level of kind of intimacy to that film that I think is rare where it almost feels too much it almost feels like I don't know if we should be seeing this do you know what I mean it feels mm-hmm. so yeah. personal and I wonder how that was for you making it if I'm well making it was a process of grieving because you know Gary was a mentor to me and I think in a way until he died I didn't really realize how much of an impact he had on me. It just felt like such a massive loss. And I was putting together these little short video montages for his memorial service, which I put together. Mm-hmm. And then I quickly thought, oh, there's an amazing documentary in this footage. And it was hard to make. It took me months before I could really listen to his voice and listen to all the podcasts. Mm-hmm. I, it, it all just made me so sad. Mm-hmm. And... I had an idea of what I thought some of his life was about, and I didn't know if I was correct because it, it kept feeling like it was about the loss of his brother when he was a little kid and how his family handled it, which was by not really talking about it. Mm. And it, it forced him to it internalize so much, and it led to a lot of issues in relationships and trust issues. But it was a guess. And then right near the end of the process, I opened up, a diary that I hadn't found before. And there was a, a a letter to his brother that basically said everything that I thought it was. Wow. And he said just what a profound effect that his brother had on him his entire life. And he says, I'll see you on the other side. It was a long letter. I put a little piece of it in the, the documentary. And I felt like Gary wanted something like this to be out there, but he didn't hadn't figured it out in stand-up and even in thinking about documentaries, Gary was trying to crack the code on this. And Mm. to me, it felt like finishing up a project that he had started, that this is what he would want you to take from his life. He would want you to learn from the messiness of his life. He, he, you know, he leaned Buddhist and, you know, there's a thing in Buddhism, you know, use everything for the path, right? Use everything as a lesson. And although Gary was very private in life, Uh, I thought now that he's gone, he would want people's lives to get better as a result of him Mm. having led this life. Although I could be wrong, he would be furious 
we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it feels like I, I, I really I, I watched that film and I thought this it feels like an act of love, like it's a it's a real it's a love letter to a man, but it was a very even-handed. It isn't a what if, I don't know if this is the right word. Hagiography, hagiography. Yeah, Hagri- it's not. It's not meant to just kiss his ass and say he's yeah. the greatest. Because Gary was wonderful and giving, and also a terror at times. Mm. And and he, there were people he couldn't forgive. He he was very hard on Bob Saget. You know, they had a falling out when Gary sued their mutual manager. And Bob Saget made a joke to a newspaper where he said, I'm going to sue him, too, because I need a Porsche. And that really hurt Gary's feelings. And in a way, he never made up with him the rest of his life because he thought that the joke made Gary look like he was just in it for the money and not for the justice of dealing with having been wronged by the manager. Mm. And Gary took it way too far. It was just way too far. Bob was in this terrible situation where he was tight with Gary and tight with his manager and his manager was really there for him. And I'm sure Bob just nervously didn't know what to do. And Gary, even as a Buddhist, even as a person who should think all Dharma is dreams and nothing is really that important, he held a grudge. And that's what the movie's about. It's not saying that he's perfect. Sarah Silverman said, Gary needed Zen he needed yeah. this. It wasn't that he was Zen. He needed Zen. Yeah, wow. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Uh, we're doing another one now about George Carlin. Oh, really? A, a, two, a two-part documentary with my partner, Michael Bonfiglio, and, and it is so different. Also because I, I wasn't friends with George Carlin, so... Right. Is it easier? Is it easier to be more... To just go, this is a good bit. I was scared I couldn't capture it because I didn't know him, but his daughter, Kelly Carlin has uh you know done a lot of interviews with us uh, and she's a big part of it and one of the producers and and we're just finishing it up and it's it, but it's very a very different life but yeah. it's an equally deep dive and then ultimately it's about almost the prophecy of his stand up everything that we're going through today he had a bit yeah. about <laughs> 20 years ago yeah can i ask you one more thing and then i promise we'll talk about films um curious again when you look at your career you made a load of amazing stuff that wasn't necessarily successful you had a period of sort of stuff that people loved that that didn't make money or was a considered yeah not successful there was a whole period of that then you hit big basically my question is the stuff you made when you weren't as successful if i may is really really good in your head was there any difference between what you did before and after let's call it big success or is it just luck and timing uh it's hard to say i mean hopefully i'm getting better but there are things you do when you're young uh, because you don't know any better and that's why they're good so we did the cable guy and at the time because it was a dark comedy it was Mm. considered a disappointment but yet on the super bowl there's a cable guy commercial and we made that movie in 1996 so you know so it's 26 years later that character is alive enough in the culture that it's, it's mad, a Super Bowl it? commercial. And yeah. I remember Gary Shandling was friends with Warren Beatty and Cable Guy wasn't doing well and got really bad reviews. And we were surprised because we thought people would, would yeah. be, appreciate that we were taking all these risks creatively. Yeah. And Warren Beatty said to me, you don't know if a movie is good or means anything to people for 10 years 
right. after it comes out. Then you'll know if they're still talking about it. Then you'll know where it really landed. Uh, like Harold and Maude was a big bomb when it came out. Mm. And so the fact that 26 years later, people think it's funny enough that they want to yeah, still talk yeah. about it. And the Blu-ray comes out and there's anniversaries of the movie. Uh, so, but still it's a lesson because Stiller and I are making a movie. We don't really even know how to make a movie. And so we're we're doing all sorts of crazy things that it's still debatable if they were the right choices or not. Too light, too dark. You know, what are we saying? But I think that movie, it was about losing your mind due to reliance on gadgets. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, that is was the point. Like I had literally yeah. and he says, you know, let's kill the babysitter. That's the end of the movie and him <laughs> jumping to land on the satellite dish. It doesn't work. He doesn't shut the satellite dish down. But there is that moment where everyone's uh tv goes out yeah and then someone just picks up a book and reads a book <laughs> i'm trying to, I, I might be even kyle gas from tenacious d is the one that reads the oh, book wow. but that was you know the, the point of the movie and then freaks and geeks you know was paul feig's vision and and we all tried to make a contribution about what happened to us in our childhoods mm. uh, in it and for me, I always think, I don't know why that came out so well. That there really? was some strange kismet or, you know, magic mm-hmm. to that, that we were just really passionate about it. You know, and obviously Paul had a very clear idea what he wanted to do. And I always thought, well, at least that happened. You know, and then and, anything I did again, after it. It's still, it's still, people still talk about it. It's still. Yeah. And it's like. A lot of people's favorite thing. It's like we didn't even know what we had never done an hour TV show. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, I always thought I'm going to treat every project like the thing after the great thing that worked. So, like, I'm allowed to take a big swing because Freaks and Geeks worked. So it's okay if I fail on the next one. And I've done that for every project since Freaks and Geeks because I thought, wow. oh, well, that's our that's our Sergeant Pepper. So at least we did one thing amazing in our whole careers and everything else can be like, we might do it again, but if we don't, it's actually okay. Cause somehow that happened. Wow. And, and that's just a mental trick for me not to put too much pressure on myself. So I really allow myself to fail every time. I don't want to be safe. That that's mm. the key. Judd, I've forgotten to tell you something and I feel like an idiot because we've been talking for about 20 minutes and I, probably should have said it at the beginning and uh i don't even know how you're going to take this but i'll just say it and we'll i guess we'll deal with the fallout afterwards um i'm so sorry i just have to say it. uh you, you've died you're dead oh man shit uh, i thought this would happen at some point yeah what what happened how did you die i was walking down the stairs mm-hmm. in the middle of the night because i realized i didn't bring the dogs in and a cat was on one of the steps. And my, when my foot hit the cat, I, I was like, oh, don't step on the cat. And then I just fell backwards and wiped out. And, and that's how I died. Trying not to hurt my cat. And I have four cats. Like, I don't need four. I could have three cats. But my instinct was to care about the cat more than me. I love that as a Hollywood screenwriter, you died saving the cat. <laughs> yes that's, that's really i hadn't funny. thought about that that is like that is correct that is, that what is a perfect death uh, <laughs> do you do you do you worry about death yes i'm a very I'm very bad on death my parents weren't religious they never talked about religion ever and right. there was no discussion of the afterlife ever which has left me with a gaping hole and so i'm very 
I'm very interested in Buddhism and the idea of of uh, accepting it, accepting everything. Like there is no time. I my body lives in time, but I do not live in time. But then I never really fully believe it. But I'm trying. I'm trying to have something. But uh, I generally I don't have a good enough answer that lets me sleep well at night. So what I'm also trying to do is accept my own death. So like when I'm on a plane and I take off, mm-hmm. I don't like try to live. I always say the same thing, like, that was a pretty good ride. I guess that was it. And then I get less nervous. And I think in life, that's what I'm trying to do, to just go like, okay, that was enough. So you're treating everything like like you treat freaks and geeks, like the next project, the next day. I had a pretty good day. So now it yep. doesn't matter what happens. If I die, I had a good exactly. day. Exactly. I, I, that's the only way I think to feel a little bit better. You know, I really like that. That makes sense to me. Um, do, do you think anything happens when you die? I, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, who is the big uh, you know, mm-hmm. Buddhist monk that a lot of people read his books, like pieces every step. He has all these amazing books. And he just says, I'm not dead. Like, I'm in you. I'm in your thoughts. Uh, every time you breathe, I'm there. I'm in the trees. I'm I'm the leaves. And I think that's a beautiful idea. That doesn't work at all for me to feel better. Yeah. <laughs> Not remotely comforting, but yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to be in a leaf. Okay. That's, I, under, I get it. I get what that means. We're all energy. We're all changing and moving constantly, but I would like to be here. I don't want to be in a cricket. I don't want to be like a piece of, uh, you know, some sort of living fungus in dirt. Mm. None of that feels good to me. So I, I don't know, but. Someone said to me once, you have to love the mystery. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to love the mystery because I think Pete Holmes has an incredible bit about it. Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing and doing it wrong, but he basically says people talk about like, how could there be a heaven? And Pete said, well, how can there be this? And then he's like, we're on a planet moving 20,000 miles an hour, yet we don't fall off of it. Yet, you know, like he has an amazing bit, which I think actually is true. Like who, who knows? Well, I know. I'm glad you know. Don't worry about it. It's actually, I think you're going to like it. There's a heaven, straight up heaven. Thank God. And it's filled, it's, (laughs) it's filled with your favorite thing. What's your favorite thing? I guess it's movies, right? I guess we're going to talk about movies. Can be. Could be, yeah. Unless you want to change the format, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to yes add. Okay, it's uh, they're very excited to see you in heaven. They're all, they're all big fans of, uh, of, of all of your work, and but they want to talk about your life. Yes. They want to talk about your life through film. And the first thing they ask you is, what is the first film you remember seeing, Judd Apatow? The first film I have a memory of watching was a movie called The Phantom Tollbooth. Yes. And it was, uh, I believe it was like real people. And at some point they went through like a toll booth and it became animated. Correct. I remember this film. I don't remember much more about it. I have located it at times where I could watch it, but have made some choice not to watch it because it's like so magical in my mind. Yeah. But that that's my first memory of a movie. I mean, you know, my family as a, as a kid would buy the first like VHS tapes. Uh, nice. So right when it was invented, we had the the VCR, you know, mid seventies, and we only really had about like ten or twelve movies. You know, it really was like Godfather Part One and Two, Annie Hall, French Connection, ten, ten. <laughs> movie ten, and 
the Pink Panther. I mean, so for a while there was like six and then eight. And, and, and our whole life was those movies. So I was like a little kid, wow. like a little kid, you know, yeah. 10, eight. I'm like watching The Godfather a lot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then all the Woody Allen movies, you know, we all feel bad talking about Woody Allen these days. Yeah. But truly that was just the heavy rotation was all those movies at that time up through Manhattan uh, was what we would watch constantly. Are you an only child? I have an older brother and a younger sister. Okay. But behaved like an only child a fair amount. <laughs> Sat alone a fair amount. <laughs> so so you watched The Phantom Tollbooth at home on TV is your first memory of it? No, it was in the theater. Oh, in the, cin- oh, in the cinema. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yep. And and did you think, well, I, want, I want in on this? I don't think I ever really thought I wanted in on movies. I wanted in on stand-up. That's right. the strange part about me. I didn't really make a movies adjustment till I was in my 20s. I didn't pay any attention to movies as a kid. Like, really? hmm, I wonder what lens Coppola's <laughs> using on this shot. I didn't care at all. I liked movies, but I didn't think about being a director ever. I didn't think about writing them ever, yeah. really. I just thought I'd love to be in that world of the National Lampoon people and the Saturday mm-hmm. Night Live people like Stripes. I'd like somehow to be in in that yeah. I don't know how it happens, and I want to be friends with those people. I want to have a group like that. But I don't think I had a clear vision, and I wanted to be on stage like Jeff Altman or Jerry Seinfeld or Gilbert Gottfried. That that was the dream, to to be a stand-up comedian. Then later, friends would get successful, and suddenly they'd be like, should we try to write a movie? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I went to college for that, I think. <laughs> Really? I did I did 18 months of screenwriting at USC. I think I know the format. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I sold a movie pitch when I was very young. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, it seemed like, oh, they bought it. They like it. I went downstairs to a bookstore and bought How to Write a Screenplay. And then the people I had pitched it to walked into the bookstore and I had to hide that I was <laughs> buying the book. <laughs> you, you should have just signed it. I'm just signing this. I, uh, yeah. I wrote this one. <laughs> uh, what's, the, what's the film that scared you the most? Do you like being scared? You've never made a horror. I tried. I, I've tried to write some horror. I don't know if it's my move because I really have made some attempts to produce and help with horror. And I, I've never really assisted uh, well. Bill Hader was writing a horror movie before, years before Trainwreck. And it was a great idea. It, it really was funny. But I don't think I had the chops in the world of horror to give the appropriate guidance to right. get it to where it was shootable but you like uh, horror yourself i don't i'm not like a big fan of horror because i don't love being in this state of terror i will watch it yeah i love what jordan peele's doing and i've I've seen a fair amount of it and my kids like it and they would they'll make me watch it but it's not where i go to for fun i i actually like a scary movie more than a violent horror movie Yes, so I'm not a, I'm not attracted to like chopping people up. But if there's like a movie and someone said like it's really scary, like Baba Duke, I'm all about right. the Baba Duke. That that kind of thing I like a lot. Uh but the movie as a kid that scared me the most uh was probably The Fog. 
the original version of Ooh, the fog. And also nice. when a stranger is calling, because that idea of like, the call is coming from inside the house. Yeah. That freaked me out. But the movie The Fog had these, like, I don't remember if it was like pirates or something. <laughs> Some like coming through the fog into the town. Uh, to murder everyone. I'm sure I'm getting all the details wrong. Yeah, no, but, a fog comes uh, in and people, like, ghosts are in it, like, from the past. I don't know if they were pirates. They might have been sailors, yeah. but they're, yeah, yeah. They're, they're not uh, happy. People. They're not happy. They, uh, yeah. But When a Stranger Calls was the first one where I was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> when a Stranger Calls is amazing. And also amazing to string an hour and a half film out of the concept he's in the house. Yes. <laughs> the call is coming from the house, and it's like they make it last. <laughs> was that Carol Kane was in that yeah. movie? Yeah. Right? Carol That's Kane. Right. And I also was really scared. It, like the scariest kind of movie thing was in Woody Allen movies, he talked about his fear of death. And he had the little boy, and he's just like, well, I don't know if the, if the, if the universe expands. You know, why does it break apart? Or, you know, there was a lot of yeah. what's the point of living type jokes. And as a little kid watching way too much of that, it planted seeds of, of terror in me. That's interesting. What about crying? What's the film that made you cry the most? Are you a crier? I love to cry. I'm a sucker. I'll cry during a commercial. I'll cry randomly uh, during anything. And you'll cry, you'll cry in life, in public, in like you're not shy about it? Or are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I mean, I'm, I, I won't hold it in in the, in the setting where it, it is appropriate. I, I, I mean, Terms of Endearment is mm. just a cry fest. The, yeah. you know, the scenes near the end with Deborah Winger, the hospital. And then at the very end, Jack Nicholson is taking care of the boy mm. at, at the funeral. And then he walks into his house and he says, you want to see my pool? And there's something about it that just makes you ball that this man who is all about himself, who's so self-involved, cares about this kid. And I remember I asked James Brooks about that scene. And I said, it's just such a magical grace note at the end of this story. How did that happen? Is that improvised? And he said, mm -hmm. you know, we were going to shoot the funeral scene. And I said to everyone on the movie, there is a Rothko Museum where we are. I, I don't know if they were in Dallas or in Texas. And you should go look at these paintings. And I guess he was trying to get people in the spirit of, of mourning for mm -hmm. the funeral. And you should go there to prepare. And he said, no one went but Nicholson. Wow. Uh, yeah. And thus you get... Let me show yeah. you my pool. But that, wow. that, you know, ending a movie on a, on a on a very small gesture of kindness, yeah, you know, I found very, very powerful. And for some reason, I cried during the last twenty minutes of Punch Drunk Love. I just ball like I can't stop crying. You know, I, you know, I connect to it so much. And you know, I lived with Adam Sandler, and when he was making the movie, he's like, "I'm kind of doing an impression of you and my brother," <laughs> and. I would watch the movie and I could see like what he's making fun of, which at core was like my insecurity that he observed when we lived together, when mm. we were in our early twenties that I was just like terrified around women. And I, there's a funny moment where he's like talking about, he's on a date and he's trying to explain something funny a DJ said. 
and he's just bombing at the table. And I'm like, that's like my entire early 20s. <laughs> table so, bombing is the worst bombing. Yeah. So psychically, I felt so connected to the loneliness of that character that I would just lose my mind Aww. sobbing, watching the end of it. Because I was happy he, he found love, even yeah. though he seems somewhat crazy and broken. <laughs> he seemed not well. <laughs> I, I I think it I don't know what it was on. Maybe it was on the Pete Holmes podcast. Or was it with you? I don't know. Where where James Brooks was talking about the end of As Good As It Gets and how that was just sort of made up, just improvised. They were trying to find an ending. They did I think they had like three nights of just kind of playing around and then yeah. I think he just shouted, Kiss her <laughs> from behind the camera and <laughs> and I think he said he'll do it better next time or whatever exactly that line is, and that's the the line in the film. And he's, it, it, it was an improvisation uh, from Nicholson. Yeah, I think it was like a, a kind of genuine moment of the kiss wasn't great. Uh, I'll, I'll do it better next time. And it was like, no, that works for this. Yeah, it's like the Amazing. end of The Graduate. Can I tell you something Please. nuts about that? Please. I was on the set one of those nights. No, tell me. Owen Wilson... I believe was a co-producer on that movie. Yeah. Uh, James Brooks was one of the producers of Bottle Rocket and he he hired Owen to you know be someone that he turned to uh to be part of the creative discussion of the movie. I'm not sure exactly what wow. Owen's services were, but he was yeah. you know part of the creative team on that movie and I went to visit the set the night they were shooting that. No way. I was I I wasn't really wearing the headphones uh, at the monitor with Mr. Brooks. I was very far away, just terrified. But I was uh, there, and James Brooks is the person that you know I, I've always learned so much from. Yeah. Uh, you know what he did in broadcast news and and in uh, all so much movies and television and The Simpsons and uh, yeah. It, it's really the thing that I, I try to be very aware of is the humanity underneath the yeah. comedy, and, and he always talks about that you have a responsibility to the characters you create. I love thinking about it that way. That's like really they nice. exist and you have to do right by them. You can't yeah. be lazy. You, you have to come through. God, I really like that. Tell me this. What is the film that you love? People don't yes. really like it. It's not critically acclaimed, but you don't care what anyone says. You love it unconditionally. Judd Apatow, what is it? Well, the movie that I like that maybe not everyone loves. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid, Caddyshack came out and it got two and a half stars in New York Newsday. It was the first time I saw a movie that I worship get a bad review and, and, and w- where I understood that, oh, maybe reviewers aren't always correct. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the, the, the abuse of meatballs thing. and Caddyshack was a big thing. There is a movie that makes me laugh so hard, not to keep talking about Sandler, but Jack and Jill makes me laugh so hard i don't know where people think it's it stands in the canon of sandler but i brought my kids to the premiere i've never laughed harder i was just wall to wall <laughs> losing my mind and I, and again i think the culture caught up to it with the pacino stuff and the yeah. the donut commercial and, and all that um doug Caccino. but my kids kept looking at me like what is wrong with you and what was making <laughs> me laugh the most was i could see in adam's eyes the glee he was getting from doing it. There was just a joy in in playing the female part that 
I, it made me giggle so hard because every choice he made, I would imagine him thinking of how to do it. So I was having a multi-level, just ridiculous <laughs> laugh fast uh, watching it. And also it's, it's, it's so proud to just go, I'm going to do anything to make you laugh. That is a perfect answer. You, I, I, I felt the same way about That's My Boy, which yes. I, yeah, I, hilarious. I, I know was very badly received and fuck it's funny i mean we laughed i mean say what you like i was laughing all the way through it people don't realize how hard it is to just try to make people piss their pants yeah to try to figure out what those levers are that get you to a place where you really laugh hard and you're shocked and you it yeah. just gets you in a mel brooks riotous way you yeah. know uh that's like my favorite thing when people are just going i'm going to try to destroy you right now i like i'm so excited to see jackass forever right because i know what's coming i know i'm going to be so happy hacks is back for season three and so is the official hacks podcast in each episode hacks creators lucia and yellow paul w downs and jen statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the emmy winning comedy series You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. <laughs> What is the film that you used to love, but you've watched it recently and now you don't like it, but that can be for personal reasons or whatever? It might be author, author. Go on. Al Pacino as a writer, Diane Cannon, a lot of kids. He has a lot of kids, Al Pacino. They all have the manner of David Krumholtz as a young actor. But as a kid, I kind of loved that movie and I watched it again and i thought maybe as a kid i like thought i was like being sophisticated with an adult movie but maybe not the masterwork now i'm not saying it's not solid but in my mind as a kid i felt like i'm smart i like author author (laughs) (laughs) it's a real title that makes you sound smart i get that what's the film that means the most to you not necessarily the film itself is any good, but the experience you had around seeing the film that will always make it yeah. special to you. You know, I went and saw Diner with my mom oh, I when I was a kid. You know, my mom was no longer with us and my parents got divorced and, and she, you know, she moved away and she was working as a waitress at a diner in the Hamptons and... She was very upper middle class and was really bummed that she had to do that. Right. And I was proud of her. I thought it was cool. Like, oh, my God, you're just working hard to take care of yourself. And she was really bummed, but it was so nice and funny. And people probably loved her as a waitress. But really the last person in the world you would think of who would have to support herself in that way. 
And she took me to see Diner like after she worked and she fell asleep the entire time. And I just remember watching Diner and my mom's just exhausted oh, from trying to make a living. Yeah. But but was for me, even though she had no gas in the tank, took me to Diner. How old were you at the time? I was probably 14 or 15. So you stayed with your dad and your mom moved away. Is that what happened? Yeah. If I may ask. And and that wasn't something that happened. Yeah, that's so it was all very right? it was all very uh, traumatic. But when I think of moments where my mom was really trying to be there for me, you know, that's yeah. a big one. And then that became a movie that influenced me an enormous amount because Barry Levinson, you know, he's a he's a great storyteller, and he told personal stories uh, about his childhood, about his friendships, mm. and I think that he's much more influential then people realize that all of this Tarantino speak and Seinfeld yeah. that a lot of the earliest incarnations of, of that was created by Barry Levinson in, in diner. Yeah. It, you know, that's where we saw just people talking about a roast beef sandwich. Yeah. And Paul Reiser is, you know, asking who's better Mathis or Sinatra. And, and he used comedians, you know, he, he had Paul Reiser, and he, he let him improvise, which I was very influenced by. And I thought, wow, Paul Reiser wrote most of his lines. That's incredible. But it made it so real to how people talk when they when they hang out. I think later movies and TV did that. But I can't really think of places that did it as well before Diner. And, it's got, and it also does see, like, it's not um, for nothing, as in... There's that incredible, I think it's one of like the all-time great scenes with Daniel Stern and Ellen Barkin where he's saying, you never ask me about the B-sides of all these records. You never ask yes. me about the B-sides. And it's yeah. this, you know, on the surface, it's a funny conversation about, I care about stuff you don't care about, but really it's about their marriage. It's a, it's yeah. an amazing bit of writing that, like, you never ask me about the B-sides. I don't give a shit. She's like, what the <laughs> fuck do I care? I don't care about the B-sides. <laughs> and yeah, the, and the, sport, the sports tests. Yeah, Steve Gutenberg makes his fiance take a test, and he won't marry her if she doesn't know <laughs> yeah. everything about sports. It's so good. I didn't know that about your your mum, and it's uh, I mean, it's explained uh, all the things that you've been asking the question of why do you do comedy. It's like, well, I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it all it all starts coming together. Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> uh, What's the film that you most related to, Judd Apatow? I mean, I related to Fast Times at Ridgemont High as a kid. I, I, I liked seeing the hierarchy of the high school. Right. When we did Freaks and Geeks, Paul Feig, he never like looked at Welcome to the Dollhouse and Fast Times as influences. But to me, they were my influences right. as his partner. Yeah. And... I always thought about, you know, the kid who worked at the movie theater and his friend sold the concert tickets and, and, and he was the nerdy, the nerdy one. And I was like, I feel like that kid. I'm that kid at the movie theater. And that was very meaningful to me. And that the people in it spoke the way we spoke and Judge Reinhold's character. Uh, it, it, it felt like someone had captured what it felt like in the mid eighties to be in high school. And, and actually it was written by Cameron Crowe who went undercover in a high school and wrote a book about what happened. Yeah. And that, then he wrote a screenplay of the book, but he really did it. And he's one of the people I interview in sicker in the head. And I ask him a lot of questions uh, oh, great. about that. 
I'd like to know about that. All right. Okay, I'm going to read that section next. Judd Apatow is the one people is the one people tune in for. What's the sexiest film you've ever seen? And is it by Derek and Ten? I mean, that was a, a movie that I don't remember any of because I love Dudley Moore. I just yeah. remember as a kid thinking, I wish there was less adult stuff in this and more silly Dudley Moore. Interesting. I, I, I didn't. I didn't like hunger for the adult Blake Edwards right. aspects. I was like, I'd like Dudley Moore to be going nuts a little bit more, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but more Arthur type humor. Yeah. But as a kid, I think the sexiest movie was probably Body Heat. Yes. I mean, that was the one where you're like, well, that's that's as that's as hot as a as a movie can get. Yeah. I could not I could not create scenes like that in a movie. I get uncomfortable when I have to have anyone be sexy or sexual. I'm working through my own issues when I'm trying to present those types of scenes. But when I look at that, I I think, well, that is a commitment. Lawrence Kasdan, the great Lawrence Kasdan, mm-hmm. made that movie. Good film. And he, he, I don't know, I can't think of another scene in anything that's like that. What, what yeah. else would you, what else would even compare? I'll, I'll email you a list. What is, <laughs> <laughs> what is, uh, there's a subcategory to this question. Troubling boners, worrying why dons. A film you found arousing that you weren't sure if you should. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, Thank you. You know, I might say Sharky's Machine. I might. Okay. Uh, you remember Sharky's Machine? The, the Bird, Bird Reynolds. Uh, maybe it was Rachel Ward okay. in Sharky's Machine. Um, I mean, there was this Canadian movie. I can't re- ever remember the name of it, but it was about a guy who was like a, a extra. You know, he's atmosphere in movies, a wannabe actor, wasn't doing well. And he plays a cop in something and he steals the uniform and starts like going around town acting like a cop and like being more and more aggressive about that. Just like yeah. telling people to get out of the way and, you know, giving people tickets, even though he's not a cop. And I remember there was some sort of romance in that movie uh, with a Canadian actress. And I, I can't remember it. I can't remember what it looked like, but I remember being fascinated by it. And someone's going to message you and tell you mm-hmm. what that movie is. It's a Canadian, a Canadian it's, movie. It's not the film Let's Be Cops. No, it's like a drama. It's like a troubling right. version of Let's Be Cops from like and 10 years Miami before Blues. that. It's not Miami it's Blues. Not, it, it's, not, it's not Miami Blues. Hmm. Okay. That is a good mystery for us. Yes. J- Judd Apatow, what is objectively, objectively... The greatest mm-hmm. film of all time. Might not be your favorite, but objectively, it's the greatest. I mean, when I think of perfect movies, it's always like there's like two or three. I can't get it exactly right. Being there yes. is usually on the top of my list. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's a miracle yeah. of, a, a, of a movie. It holds up. I mean, I think all through the Trump administration, people referenced it. And uh, it's a Yerzy Kaczynski novel uh, that it was based mm-hmm. on. I think my grandfather was, did the development for John Frankenheimer, the director, really? when he was like in his 60s or late 50s. And there was a period where the, I think they claimed they, they owned that book and then they lost the option to it. Uh, uh, but Peter Sellers couldn't be funnier. The scenes with him and Shirley MacLaine, 
the scene where they're like watching television and mm-hmm. he's trying to copy what's on the TV and she thinks like they're having a sexual moment. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it's the greatest comic set pieces of all time and then has a much deeper meaning. And then I always think about Cuckoo's Nest oh, in terms fuck, of endearment. I, I mean, in terms of endearment and broadcast news are always right up there. And then I always think about the movie, in addition to like Godfather movies and you know, Goodfellas, there's a movie called A Prophet. Yeah, a it's a fucking good movie. That I, I just when it ended, I'm like, it, you can't do it better than that. <laughs> yeah. You can't. You know, as good wrong. as it is, you know. So, which is your answer? Gun to head. I'd say being one. being there. I'd say being Great. there. You can have it. Chad Apatow. What's the film you could or have watched the most over and over again? The movie that I've seen more than any other movie. That's a good question. What have I watched over and over again mm-hmm. that I want to watch over and over again? Maybe, oddly, Groundhog Day. <laughs> <laughs> Another perfect movie. Yeah. You know, we made a movie called Year One with Harold Ramis, and we were all excited to just be around him because he loved yeah. to answer questions. He would tell you all the stories very happily. Oh, he was the nicest man and the greatest hang. But that is as good as a comedy film yeah. can get. And you can watch it over and over again and always find new things yeah. about it. Yeah. I have a question for you. When you're making films, and I think I read something, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, th- I think this is what you said in an interview, and I really liked it, is that someone was saying, all your films are so long, why are they so long? Cut them down. And you said something like, because I like all the bits. I don't want to cut it down. <laughs> Is that true? Well, Is that right? Well, I you know there's usually a, a moment in the mo- in the editing yeah. where you realize as a whole this might play better at an hour and 48. But right. the 16 minutes I would have to cut to get you there is the thing that makes the movie really good. Yeah. And so I feel ahead of my time in not caring about time because you know people will <laughs> sit down and watch like seven episodes of Yellow Jackets in a row. So yeah. why won't you watch a two hour and seven or 11 minute movie? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, it's, you know, comedies need to be 90 minutes. So comedy is worth less of your time than a spaceship or Thank a superhero. You. Thank uh, you. I remember someone said to me, I, I think it was James Brooks, who he said, you know, when your movie's a little bit longer, you're saying these people are worth your time. That's very nice. And that's how I, I like to look at it. And, and I have watched movies later and go, God, I wish I found that 10 minutes. Really- and sometimes, sometimes they ask me to cut it down because I have to because it's going to be on ABC or something. And they're like, well, right. you only have this much time. So you need to cut 12 minutes. For it to wow. fit on network television, and I do, and every once in a while I'm like, "Yeah, it might be better that way." <laughs> <laughs> when you're when you're making, I can't remember this from. How often do you think when you're in the edit? Did you watch the film? Let's say, let's take this is forty, which I love, by the way. How often do you think you watched that film from beginning to end in the edit, rather than working on bits where you just sat back, watched it as a whole? Do you have any estimate? You have to be careful because. Your brain can only handle so many full watches. So I'll fix hunks of it for months and months, having maybe watched a long two-hour and 40-minute assemble at the beginning of the process once. Mm. And then I won't 
watch it all together. I'll just watch, you know, they cut in like yeah. six reels. And then at the preview, when I watch it with an audience, that's when I watch it. Right. I rarely watch the whole thing by myself without an audience. Right. But then when I'm with the audience, I really like rest up and get focused. And I try to see if I can have the experience of the audience, which is hard because you, you lose all the mystery and the tension of, I wonder what'll happen. So in a way, as a filmmaker, you never get to watch it the way another person feels when they watch it. So you almost can't edit your movie correctly. You're trying to edit your movie based on math, based on story dynamics that you're being very intellectual about. But when someone watches a movie, you know, sometimes you think, oh, I, I wonder if they're, they're going to be worried if they're going to kiss. But really what they're worrying about is he's going to murder her. Like you don't know what people think yeah. when they don't know what's coming. And sometimes you'll test the movie and they'll be like, I really thought he was going to kill her. And you're like, I didn't intend that at all. I thought yeah, he looked like yeah. he just liked her. Uh, <laughs> and that's something that you're, you have to have a conversation with the crowd to say, yeah. where was it boring? Where is it slowing down? Uh, how are you experiencing this? Uh, I'm actually excited because there's a lot of my movies I haven't watched in 10 years or more. Mm -hmm. And I can begin to try to watch them to see if I can get a feel for them. As an audience member, amazing. What, Judd Apatow, what's the? Uh, I don't like to be negative for too long. What's the worst film you ever seen? I think the worst movie I've ever seen was a kids movie. I used to have to watch all the kids movies when my daughters mm -hmm. were younger. And there was a movie called Bratz, B R A T Z. <laughs> yes. And I, every every second of it was like being in the dentist chair. It just, time was moving backwards. And it all felt like an excuse to make a toy into a movie. It yeah. felt like a like a money play. And I could be wrong, but on that predict, particular day, I suffered more than I can remember ever suffering in a movie. And did they love it? Did your girls love it? I don't even think they loved it. You know, uh. A lot of times when you take your kids to movies, it's just a Sunday time killer. Right. Like your kids are bored and you're like, okay, an hour and a half of this will be this movie. Then we'll go get Chinese food. And so you, you wind up seeing a lot of movies that you wouldn't want to see. But it is sad because now that my, my kids are you know 19 and 25, mm. I don't go to kids' movies anymore. I don't watch them. And I did. I watched them for 20 years. Everything. Mm. Every single kids' movie that came out. And I, like I was home the other day. I'm like, should I watch this cartoon? And I didn't. And I'm like. You should Maybe I just start watching kids' movies alone. Is that weird and creepy to just sit by yourself watching those movies? I don't know. You'd have to ask my neighbor if she thinks it's weird and creepy that I do. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> You're in comedy. You're a comedian. You've made some of the great comedies. What film made you laugh the most, Judd Apatow? I, I mean... The movie that makes me laugh more than any movie, I mean, there's a couple of experiences. I remember watching Young Frankenstein in a theater at a revival house 20 years ago, mm. having never seen it with a crowd and the place just losing their shit wall to wall. Oh, just the laughs were crazy. And that was fun. The, the biggest laughs I remember in a theater one was Airplane when it came out, like the weekend wow. it came out. So I saw wow. that as a very young man. And it it was a barn burner. It just, it, it made everyone so happy and people laughed so hard. And the other one I remember, well, there are two others. Something about Mary, I went to see with Ben Stiller on opening night, just in the 
hiding in the back in Santa Monica. And that was so fun. It's so fun to see it with Ben. I was just so happy for Ben. And it, it, it inspired so many movies and so many of our movies. But the one that was the craziest was we went to see Borat. Yeah. The first time Sasha showed his friends to get thoughts and notes. So it was like 25 minutes longer than it ultimately was. They were set pieces in it that he cut out. There was a whole scene like shooting a porno that was just so crazy and troubling. (laughs) That may have hit some DVD. Actually, I don't know. And the scene where he has the naked fight. Mm Mm-hmm. There was nothing covering the ball. So it was way longer and make way more aggressive about like just the guy's balls and penis on Sasha's face, just rubbing on his face. And, you know, it was a true fall out of your seat, you know, spit up whatever you're eating or drinking moment. And then when it ended, George Meyer from The Simpsons was there. Wow. And, and, uh, he just said, I feel like I just, Listen to Sergeant Pepper for the first time. It's wow. my second Sergeant Pepper reference. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's the nicest compliment mm. you ever can get. Like we knew the form had been reinvented. Yeah. And that was exciting. That's a perfect answer. Okay. Judd Apatow, you've been amazing. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for giving me your time. However, when you were walking down the stairs late at night and one of your four cats, you're about to tread on it and you thought in perfect screenwriting structure, save the cat so you moved your foot and in doing so you fell down the steps over and over and over again and it turns out you've got five flights of steps because you live in a very big house and you just kept rolling down it like a sort of (laughs) old-fashioned stuntman but you didn't quite have the way to land in a way that wouldn't hurt yourself and you broke 93 percent of all the bones in your body (laughs) at the bottom of the stairs you were dead land on your head dead and the cat Padded over, walked over your body, went and had some milk. No idea what had gone on. I'm walking past. I've got a coffin with me. You know what I'm like. I pop in on the upper towels. I'm like, how's everyone? How's everyone doing? I said, has anyone seen Judd? I just wanted to uh, to say hello. And they went, oh, I think he's having a nap at the bottom of the stairs. I go to the bottom <laughs> of the stairs. I go, I don't think that's a nap. You're in a fucking state. You're all over the shop. So I have to get you, but you're all in bits, like your 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 limbs are all twisting stuff. I have to break off bits to try and get you in this coffin. I have to end up chopping you up. I get I get the whole family involved. We say, can I can get, bring some knives? We chop you all up, pop you all in the coffin. You're absolutely jammed in there. There's more of you than I was expecting. The coffin is full. There is only really enough room in this coffin for me to slide one DVD into the side with you for you to take across to the other side. And on the other side, it's movie night every night. One night, it's your movie night. What film are you taking to show people in heaven when it's your movie night? Dang, that's a, that's a thing. I'm going to say it's just what popped into my head. Animal House. Wow, okay. You know, there's comedy, there's music. There's a, a lot of things because, you know, if that's the only one, mm-hmm. it has to have a lot of stuff going on in it. And no one else has brought it. You'll be welcome in heaven. People are going to have a go. party. Uh, Judd Aftow, you've been fucking brilliant. Is there anything you would like to tell people to watch, listen out for, mm-hmm. read, etc.? Yes. Well, Please. Sicker in the Head is my book uh, for charity for 826 that is coming out. And you can buy it now on 
online or at a real bookstore. Better to get at a real bookstore. Yes. Uh, but you could get an advanced copy now. Uh, that comes out uh, in March. And Brilliant. then The Bubble comes out this spring on Netflix. And then in May, the two-part George Carlin documentary. And oh, then wow, I disappear actually- for about two, three years. So I'm going to disappear. I realized I did too much over the last few years, and now I got I just shut it down. Nothing but uh, poems that I don't <laughs> show anyone. That I burn after I write them. <laughs> John Apatow, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a lovely death. <laughs> Good day to you, sir. You as well. Thank you. That was fun. So that was episode 188. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra 20 minutes of chat, secrets and videos with Judd. Go to Apple Podcasts, put down five stars, but don't talk about the podcast. Talk about the film that means the most to you and why. That's what I want to read. I love to read that. So does my neighbour Maureen and we really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much to Judd for giving me all that time. Thanks to Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to Acast for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics and Lisa Lydon for the photography. Come and join me next week for another brilliant guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I can promise you it's another banger. I hope everyone is well. That is it for now. In the meantime, have a lovely week. And please, now more than ever, be excellent to each other. Canva presentation looks brilliant. Thanks, Brett. That's because I used AI-powered Canva presentations. I just described what I wanted and Canva presentations generated the perfect slides. You can even make a talking presentation for people to watch on their own time. Check this out. Recording. 101 Reasons Why Beaches is the Saddest Film Ever Made by your neighbour Maureen. Is it easy to use? If you can use a computer, you can nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Oh, thanks, my name is Maureen. Yeah, thank you. Brett, sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? Maureen, what is it you think I'd do for a living? Never mind. Sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more, online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen.